You're listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the field of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Calling into the show today, we have author Daniel McGee. Daniel is the author of Chasing a Flawed Son and founded the nonprofit Agape Projects, which enables him to fight food and housing insecurity in Baltimore. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabe. I am really glad you're here. Daniel, you have an incredible biography. I don't want to give everything away for you, but you were homeless by the age of 18. You dropped out of school at 16. I actually understand that you were you were banned from school at the age of 16. You had a heart attack at the age of 22. I mean, by the time you were 22 years old, you went through more than most people are going to go through in an entire lifetime. Right, right. You know, there's this concept rock bottom. Do you feel that that is a real concept? Did you hit rock bottom? Is this just something that people say? What started you on the road to where you are now? So I have my own saying about rock bottom, that rock bottom is infinite. I don't believe there's a concrete bottom that we can hit as addicts or alcoholics, because no matter how far we go, I definitely believe it can get worse. If I were to go back out today and start using drugs, I would probably blow past the rock bottom that I once experienced. It was a depth of pain and misery that motivated me to get clean, for sure, but I wouldn't call it my rock bottom. But yeah, once I got on my feet, it was a slow process to get back to a normal type of lifestyle. Let's talk about what it was like growing up. Did you have any immediate trauma that set you up for alcoholism and addiction? I grew up in a lower middle-class family. My parents were together. They've never divorced. They met high school. They've never had other partners. I am the opposite of what you would consider the typical stigma relating to drug addicts. There was no um, molestation. There was no trauma, anything in my childhood. Now, I have friends who have been addicts whose parents shot them up with their first dose of heroin or who have watched their parents die or been through horrible tragedies. But me, I came, and many people I know, came from decent family environments. There was nothing wrong that actually set us on that path. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the stigma because you're right. Whenever people hear alcohol and drug addiction, they just immediately assume that you're going to tell this this god-awful story about what society did to you or what your parents did to you or what life did to you. Do you think that that's just sort of something that people say or are you just really uncommon? I've come across in my recovery thousands of people who have the same story as me. So it's definitely not uncommon to come from a decent background and still go through the addiction process. I believe that there is a magnitude of people that have suffered trauma and various problems that led to their addiction. But I also believe that there's a huge victimization, a self-victimization and unwillingness to take responsibility for one's actions. More so from the using addicts, you'll hear society is at fault for what's wrong with me or other people are at fault for what's wrong with me. Because until they learn how to take responsibility for their own lives, they continue using drugs and alcohol. In the summary of your book, there's an intriguing line that says that heroin saved your life. I have to know what you mean by that. So I grew up a little guy, nature loving, caring, big hearted little guy. And all of my friends were bigger than me. They were just all around tougher than me and I wanted to fit in. So I tried being somebody that I wasn't. I got into acting out in school and then eventually breaking the law. And then I found alcohol and alcohol was able to make me the person that I thought that I wanted to be. 
not the person I was intended to be, but the person I thought I wanted to be. It made me violent and aggressive. It made me a tough guy. Alcohol made me no longer shy around women. And so I drank every chance I got because it made me this superhero in my own mind that I thought that I wanted to be. And under the influence of alcohol over the years, I did horrible things. I robbed and beat people. I would drive to other cities, get in fights, all kinds of stuff, and not even remember doing it the next morning. There's no, I've done every drug under the spectrum, and there's no drug that has influenced me the way alcohol did, where I would almost kill people and not even remember it the next day. What heroin did when I found heroin was it got me off of the alcohol and it took all that ego and all those walls that I built around myself while drinking and broke them all down until I had nothing. And I was on the streets homeless with no ego, no money, no pride, no nothing. And it made me start from scratch to build myself back up and search for the person that I truly was meant to be. I'm having a little trouble structuring this question because I, I, I don't want to offend you, but it almost sounds like you wanted to be an addict. I don't think that anybody wants to be an addict. I stumbled into heroin addiction on accident. I wanted to become an alcoholic. I didn't want to become addicted to alcohol, but I wanted to drink all the time because it made me somebody that I wasn't, somebody that I wanted to be. But the heroin actually, it numbs your emotions, it numbs your physical pain, your emotional pain, your anxiety, stress, and it just, it just lets you be. It's almost like the goal of meditation is what heroin achieves in a false way. That feeling was everything that I needed at that moment when my life was falling apart. And so I fell into the trap of doing it every day. Once I realized that I was addicted and I couldn't stop, I immediately did not want to be an addict anymore. And just like that, just like that, you you realized it and uh, you moved forward because I have never been an addict in, in the interest of, of full disclosure. So I'm, I'm sincere when I don't understand, but I, I know that a lot of people realize that it's impacting them negatively. It's impacting their families, et cetera. And they don't describe it as, oh, I realized this was bad and I stopped. And that's kind of how you're describing it. But I, I imagine there's probably a, a much bigger journey there. Oh, no, no, I didn't stop just because I wanted to not be an addict. It took me six years from that point. I'd say probably into the first couple of weeks of using heroin, I wanted to stop, but it took me six years. It took me 20 some incarcerations, five treatment centers and several overdoses before I finally was able to stop. Every time that I got incarcerated or every time I went in a treatment facility and had to go through horrible withdrawals, I wanted to stop. And I swore that when I walked out of those doors, I would never touch the drug again. And within hours of release, I was shooting heroin again. It definitely wasn't something that I was able to just flip a switch and do. It was, it was a lot harder than that. Clearly, we can't say that jail was the turning point because you went multiple times. And it's it'd be difficult to say that treatment was the turning point because, as you said, you went multiple times. Do you know what the turning point was that made you change? There's not an exact moment that I can pinpoint. I describe it as a process. My ego was stripped from me and I was just worn down and beaten up by this addiction so much. Every time I went to jail, every time I went to rehab, I swore I would never do it again. And then I got out and I contradicted myself and I lied to myself and I couldn't trust myself. And I would promise myself I wouldn't get high again. And then I'd go get high again. And it was just a constant beat down by life and by addiction to the point where I finally gave up and surrendered. And from that moment of surrender where I stopped trying to control my addiction, it became a process like an unfolding of maturity, 
of responsibility where I no longer looked at myself as a victim, but instead I took responsibility for every single thing that happened in my life. And then there's a long process of recovery where I build myself up and learn how to live life as a normal human being again. Let's talk about life after drugs. Is it easier? Is it harder? In recovery, there's a saying that their worst day clean is better than their best day using. And I think that's a total lie for me. For me, my worst day clean is harder than my worst day using. And the reason why I say that is because when I was using, if I had depression, anxiety, or some kind of trauma in my life, I could run from it by getting high to numb it all down or drunk to make it all go away. And now I have to fight through my anxiety and my depression and all those other things that life throws at me raw. The only benefit is now I get to grow from those experiences by not running from them. Yeah, life definitely does not get easy just because you put drugs and alcohol down. But the best part about it is you grow from it and you continue growing. I honestly believe that many of our listeners are going to be like, okay, you used to be an addict, you got help, you had the turning point, but they, they kind of want a little meat, right? They, they want to know what you've done specifically to stay clean so that you can build that new life. When an addict or an alcoholic finally stops using, they're still pretty much socially and emotionally at the point where they started. Let's say I started drinking and getting high at the age of 14. When I got clean at the age of 23 or 24, I still had the mentality and the social skills of that 14-year-old child. So it was a long process of me building my life up. I had four felonies on my record. So I could only work in restaurants, waiting tables, and that was humbling for five or six years to do that. And then finally, I had a breakthrough where I was able to start my own business and I got creative and I started a couple businesses. And then I got myself to a financial place where I wasn't worried about where my next rent or my next check was coming from so that I could start focusing on myself and giving back. When you're thinking about your family and you're thinking about that everything that you've been through, how did they handle it? What was it like for them? So my family was, um, and I had a good family, so I don't want to come across wrong here, but they were very cold to me through my addiction and my alcoholism. That meant no visits in jail, very few letters, very few phone calls. When I was 18, I was thrown out of the house on the streets. They knew I was homeless, but they believed in the tough love. And I believe for me that worked by then not enabling and not giving me money and a place to live and all of life's comforts. It forced me to my pain threshold quicker so that, you know, pain is the motivating factor for change. And so it forced me to my knees. It forced me to reach out for help quicker than if I was, you know, if, if they had let me live in their basement and gave me money and food, I might still be getting high to this day because I wouldn't have experienced the type of pain that would have motivated me to change. So let's talk about that for a moment. You know, one of the things that you said that is if your family gave you money and let you live in the basement, had they enabled you, you wouldn't have reached, for lack of a better term, rock bottom or experienced that pain. You wouldn't have been motivated to move forward. I know that there's a lot of loved ones, a lot of family members, a lot of parents who are accidentally enabling their loved ones. But, you know, they're saying, look, if, if, if my loved one becomes homeless, if they go away, if they get out, they could get into real trouble and we don't want to see that happen. So while they acknowledge that enabling them isn't the best decision, they think it's the best decision that they can be presented with. What do you have to say to those families? Because they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Yes, I believe it's the toughest position to be in. It absolutely goes against any maternal instincts or just instincts of, of love and empathy. 
by turning your back on somebody when they're in pain. However, addicts and alcoholics are manipulators. It's what we do. And we will manipulate those we love the most because they're the easiest to manipulate. And like I said, until we reach that pain threshold, we won't change. It's a gamble and it's a tough gamble. And I've seen a lot of people's loved ones die under their roofs from overdoses that may have been prevented. But there's also the chance that that person may overdose out in the streets. My advice always to family members is do not give them money. Do not make their drug use more comfortable than it should be. But if they're willing to get treatment, if they're willing to get help, absolutely bend over backwards to help them when that window opens. Do you believe that that window opens for everybody? I can't say that it happens for everybody, but I know that it does open for people quite often. I work for a treatment center getting people into treatment. Five people yesterday. I was able to get into treatment. And I see this window open up in addicts all the time from various levels, from those who have jobs and roofs over their heads to the ones that are homeless. But it's usually brief. When an addict's sick or when an addict's going through withdrawal, they don't want the help. They're reduced to a carnal nature where they're just searching for their drug of choice and they need to get well and feel normal. But when they're high is usually when they start thinking about life, when they're comfortable in their own skin again, and they start thinking about the things they've done and they reach out for help. And if somebody's not there to help them at that moment, we might miss the opportunity. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. We're back talking about drug and alcohol addiction with author Daniel McGee. Let's bring it back to you for a moment. So here you were, you were ready to get help and you, you went to the treatment center and it didn't work. Why did you believe that the last time you went to the treatment center that it would work? I mean, after, you know, two or three or four times going, it's kind of reasonable to believe that maybe this isn't for you, but you kept at it. Each time that I went to the treatment center, seeds were planted and knowledge about recovery and what I had to do to stay clean was planted inside of me. I just didn't utilize those or I would get released from the treatment center and try to do it my own way instead of the way that they taught me in there. And I would obviously fail within a day or two and I would be getting high again. I knew it wasn't the treatment centers that failed me. It was me that failed me. And that's generally the case with 99% of people is that the treatment centers do their job It's just that the addicts and alcoholics, we get out and we let our ego take hold and we try to control our life and not take the advice given to us. And that's generally why we fail. And then it's kind of a history repeats itself situation. You, you make the same mistake in different ways over and over again. What prompted you to finally take the advice that you were given? Because one of the things that you said is you wanted to do it your way instead of listening to the way that the treatment center said to do it. How did you break that cycle? I'm a hardhead. You know, I'm the type of guy, like most addicts and alcoholics, if you tell me that the stove is hot, I got I to gotta touch it for myself and find out. When I got released from rehab in jail, I tried just drinking without using drugs probably six times before I got it through my head that I couldn't drink successfully. It would always take me back to my drug of choice or that I was an alcoholic in the first place. Again, it it was just a surrender. 
it was just a beatdown. After going through the same thing over and over and over again, I just finally learned through repetition that it just wasn't going to work my way. I think that's fantastic that you finally realized that it wasn't going to work your way and you took the advice and you got well. I guess I'm just curious. I just, is there anything that anybody could have said to you to make you realize this sooner? Or does everybody just have to sit back and wait for you to figure it out on your own? That is the most unfortunate thing that we cannot change another person. They have to change themselves. They have to be willing to open-minded and willing to surrender. I speak to loved ones of families probably 10 times a day about sons or daughters who have overdosed, who, who are getting a second chance or who just can't get clean or get off the streets. And there's nothing that I can say or that person can say to change that person's heart, especially when they're in the midst of an addiction, their body, their mind, and everything about them is craving this drug or this alcohol. We just let them know that we support them and we're there for them when they're ready to make a change. And as soon as they are ready to make a change, we're willing to act on it as quick as we can. But yeah, unfortunately, they need to come to that self-realization on their own. When I was in active addiction, I was destroying myself. Everything that I did in my previous life was based on self-destruction. So now that I'm in recovery, I want to do everything the exact opposite. For instance, I tore my body apart with drugs and alcohol. I didn't eat properly. So now I'm in the gym every day. I watch what I eat. I eat healthy. I tore my brain apart with drugs and alcohol. So now I do crossword puzzles. I read books. I write books. I do blogs. I just try to keep my mind active. And what that does is it starts me in a momentum moving in the opposite direction from where I once was. And you know when something is gaining momentum going in one direction, it's hard to pull it backwards. So the more that I focus on building all these areas up every day that I spent my previous life tearing down, the more momentum I have going forward in life. And it's way harder to pull me back towards that old life. The last part of that is that I ravaged the community. I stole from everybody and everything around me. I hurt people around me. And so that's why I developed the Agape Project nonprofit. And we do work here and abroad, helping addicts, helping homeless people, helping people who have had house fires, and just trying to repay and do the opposite of everything I did in my previous life. I think it's incredible you've made such a, such a dramatic change. How long have you been clean and sober? I got clean in 2001, except in 2004, I went and got my wisdom teeth pulled. I proudly told the doctor that I was an addict and I couldn't take pain medication, and he insisted I could, and he prescribed me a week's worth of opiate pain medication. I got out, I took that, and I shot heroin for a week later. I quickly regained myself and got back on the road to recovery. I've drank for one week in the past 18 years, and I got high for one week in the past 18 years. 11 years after I was clean, in 2011, owned my own business. I got a house. I was driving a fancy car. I had all these things I never in my life imagined that I would have, and I was fresh on the dating scene at the time. So I went to dinner. I was going on dates, and every woman had a glass of wine. So I figured, you know what? I'm cured. I've got all these things that I never thought I would attain. Maybe I can have a glass of wine now. And I did. And I went home, and I was amazed that I only had one glass of wine. I thought I was cured of my alcoholism. Within a week, I was locked up because I had beaten somebody up in a drunken blackout. So my clean date is May 21st, 2011. 
Thank you so much for for being honest about that. You know, so many people they sort of want to push that one week mistake to the side, and I'm I'm really glad that you have admitted to it and let people know what happened because I know that there's a lot of people out there that maybe have that one day or the two days, or somebody could be listening to this that is you know on day five and they're trying to decide if they're going to get to day six. Right. What message do you have for those people who were clean and sober for a decade? And then they made a mistake. How did you get back on the wagon? For me, one of my main focal points of recovery is losing my ego. I always say your ego is not your amigo. And, and that's usually when somebody relapses. The seeds of recovery in your life, once you've learned how to live life in recovery, it ruins your high. You cannot enjoy getting high anymore once you know that there's a better life out there. But most people continue getting high because they're not humble enough to come crawling back into recovery and facing all those people that they feel like they've disappointed, especially themselves. And that's the ego telling us that. My advice is to stay humble, that nobody's going to judge you for making a mistake, that it's possible for any one of us. I could make that mistake tomorrow. I'm not invincible to that. So drop your pride and come back and get help. And, you know, the recovery community will be waiting with open arms to help you. Daniel, where can folks find you and find your book? I've got my own website, www.chasingaflawedson.com. I do a blog on there as well as links to purchase the book. The book is also on Amazon, Audible, and the ebook is on Amazon as well. Chasing a Flawed Son. Daniel, thanks for being on the show. To all of our listeners, here's what I need you to do. Wherever you downloaded this podcast, please rank and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate it. Share this on social media. But when you share it, tell folks why you like it and why they should listen. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness as an Asshole, which is available on Amazon. Or you can get a signed copy with all kinds of cool swag, including stickers from the Psych Central podcast for less money just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. And remember, you can get one week of free convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych central. We'll see everyone next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central podcast right from your stage. For more details or to book an event, please email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Psych Central is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share with your friends, family, and followers. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
one in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.